Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, hosted by Elise Lonich Ryan, Grant Martzoff, and me, Ryan McDermott. I am a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. Beatrice Institute is supported in part by Henny Jewelers. Since 1887, Henny Jewelers has provided the Pittsburgh region and beyond with incredible engagement rings, fine jewelry, and luxury watches. Learn more at hennyjewelers.com. That's H-E-N-N-E jewelers.com. Nineteen twenty was a dark year in Germany. The nation was demoralized and economically ruined by its defeat in World War One. Nineteen twenty saw the formation of the Nazi Party, and Adolf Hitler became chairman in nineteen twenty one. At the same time, two leaders in the Christian youth movement, Emmy and Eberhard Arnold, were encountering a contrary vision. As Emmy told it, At a series of open evenings in our house, we read the Sermon on the Mount and were so overwhelmed by it that we decided to completely rearrange our lives according to it, cost what it may. Everything written there seemed to have been spoken directly to us. What Jesus says about justice, about hungering for righteousness, loving one's enemies, and finally, about actually doing God's will. In June 1920, Emmy and Eberhardt sold everything they owned and moved with their five children from Berlin to a poor farming village to try to live in radical community like the earliest Christians as described in Acts 2 and 4. First joined by a few like-minded friends, the community grew as its Anabaptist vision of pacifism and egalitarianism attracted discontents of German imperialism. Inevitably, the Bruderhof ran afoul of the burgeoning Nazi movement. After several raids by the Gestapo, In the mid-30s, the company fled to England, and then they were expelled because they were German during World War II. An exodus via South America eventually brought the Bruderhof to New York, where they flourished. Now numbering about 3,000 members, the Bruderhof live in 29 settlements around the world, including re-foundations in Germany and England, and two large communities near Pittsburgh. On the occasion of the Bruderhof centenary, their publishing house, Plow, has produced a beautiful photo book, Another Life is Possible. Today, I speak with Bruderhof member Claire Stober, who coordinated the creation of this centenary book. This is not a typical author interview, because it's not a typical book, and as Claire is the first to tell you, she's not a typical author. Uh, the book is very much the result of communal collaboration like so much that the Bruderhof do. It consists of more than 100 vignettes of Bruderhof members. Claire interviewed the living members and pulled together texts and stories of members in earlier generations. The result is not a historical retrospective, but a collection of living stories that add up to a vivid portrait of a vibrant community. Our conversation moves through some of these life stories, and I enthusiastically recommend getting the book yourself to encounter many more. Claire, I wonder if you could start off by just telling us a little bit about how 
you came to the Bruderhof and, and a little bit about your story. Well, I did start out in the Washington, D.C. area. I'd been a principal at a graphic design and advertising and marketing firm there for about 10 years, 10, 15 years, and um, really felt that there's got to be more. There's got to be more in life. And that led me to hand over the business to my partner and then move north to Lancaster, um, where a number of people were fellowshipping that I had bec- I started fellowshipping with. And we really felt called to do more with our lives and get together once a week on a Sunday or a Wednesday. There had to be more to life. And one of the people in that group had a number of writings from the Bruderhof. And we'd all heard of the Bruderhof, but had never really read very much from them. And it was reading those writings that really moved something in our hearts. I described it at the time as like a door opened or a window opened. And I could either choose to go through it or I could back away from it and say, no, that's a little too far for me. I'm not quite ready for that, and never know if it would open again. And the door was community, um, complete discipleship, sharing of all things in common. And I was at a time in my life where I was really ready to go the whole route. And it was just the beginning, actually, because when I got here, a totally new world opened up, and it just went on from there. And I've been here 30 years now. And the early writings, uh, especially of Eberhard Arnold, are very much in the post-World War I context. And I see it as part of this movement across the developed West at the time, a real response to what seemed to be the historical failure of Western civilization and in Christendom, really. Uh, World War One had proved that if all of these Christian nations can go to war with each other, something had gone gravely wrong in the history of the Christian church. And and Arnold and his friends were trying to salvage the church in, in that aftermath. To what extent would you say those readings that you were doing to what extent were those still, for you, a response to the crisis of modernity? Or by, by this time, was it perhaps more just that they were a, a beautiful expression of the timelessness of the gospel? How were you hearing the history of those writings at the time? Well, you've got to understand, I came from a 10-year deep immersion into early Quakers before I came to the community. And so the emptiness of Christendom um, was not new to me. In fact, there are many aspects of the community that I had to sort of de-radicalize myself to adjust to, including baptism and Lord's Supper and celebrating Christmas and Easter. I was in a, a small group of Quakers, and we were very radical. We followed the early Quakers. So this universal, that I would say the cosmic implications of the gospel that the community that Eberhard Arnold defined were music to my ears when I came to the community. That that really fit with what I had experienced. And he took it further, and you, you're right, put it in that post-World War I setting with the failure of the, the, the whole structure of society. And I would say the living out of... But, but for me, the, the whole part of the Bruderhof that resonated was love to Christ and love to your neighbors. A lived discipleship living closely with brothers and sisters in in full dependence on one another. 
that that was what for me was the new the new part. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the rhythm of life in the communities. I mean, I, I imagine it's it's a little altered right now because of COVID. But you you said that one of the things that attracted you to the community was moving from a situation where you were getting together in fellowship on a Wednesday and on a Sunday to a time where you're intentionally committing to fellowship throughout the week. What are some of the regular features of weekly fellowship in the community that stand out to those who don't have this experience? Well, as with everyone else, this last year has been very difficult for the community to maintain the rhythm of our life. So much of the rhythm of our life is getting together, meeting together to sing or to um, have meals together or to worship. And we've not been able to do that. Just now are we beginning to be able to have occasional meetings together after having many of us have gotten the vaccines. So when I'm talking about it, I'll talk about it in the sense of in normal times. In normal times, I have often described life in the community as a very rich life, um, full of shared experiences, fellowship, and laughter. Um, Living together in a community means that I share everything I have, my money, my time, my talents, and that the others in the community do the same. And um, we like to explain that that means none of us are rich and none of us are poor. Everyone is cared for and belongs, no matter your age or capability. So it it might look a little different in the community here, say as in Austria or Australia, but not all that different in the structure. And we're often asked to do a task that needs to be done, but we but the community tries to find tasks that do fit our talents. I have often worked in either publishing or marketing for the time that I've been here. And at some point, uh, at different times, I've worked in the factory, often on work um, evenings, or helped out in the school, um, but mostly in publishing and marketing. Our life together, we, we look on our meals together as just as important as worship together. Um, you have to come to a meal expectant that um, you're going to be sharing something more than just food together. And we're really looking forward to having communal meals again. Singing together for us is very important. It's a way of expressing community. Everyone participates. It's not a choir singing to an audience. We're all part of it. And luckily, there are people here that can cover my voice. So, you know, we all sing whether we can do it or not. So it's it's a, a life of shared experiences um, is the way I would explain it. One of my favorite experiences of visiting the communities here near Pittsburgh, and I should just say that there are two large communities about an hour outside of Pittsburgh in the Laurel Highlands. Uh, One is called Spring Valley. The other is New Meadow Run. Uh, But then recently for the last, um, I guess, six years, uh, there's been a Bruderhof house in Oakland, uh, the university neighborhood of Pittsburgh. And it's really through that house that I came to be acquainted with the Ruderhof and then subsequently went to visit the, the communities out there. And I'd say the most, the experience that I associate most vividly with coming to know the Bruderhof is walking into dinner at Spring Valley in this massive dining hall that seats something like 300 community members 
and and everybody's everybody's there uh, sitting down and and you sit down and in something like the blink of an eye uh, there's food on everybody's table uh, you know a roast chicken and and freshly uh, prepared bread and and vegetables from the gardens and and then without any any seeming it's not like as if there's a liturgy but if you go to more than one supper you realize that there is this kind of order it all feels completely natural and organic but but there is a kind of structure to one of these meals and i was wondering if you could say a little bit about about that structure and what features might come up at a at a meal including if it's someone's birthday <laughs> okay well, yes, the food does arrive on the table, and it's probably sort of covered with a plate so that it stays warm long enough for the whole community to sing a song together to start the meal. And they may or may they probably did not call out what the song was. Someone just starts one, and within, I would say, two measures, you know what it's going to be, so you join in. And they, I mean, we have six song books. And but the ones that we sing from memory would be probably I haven't even never counted, but probably within oh hundred and fifty or two hundred songs, which for someone like me is a that's a big repertoire yeah. um, <laughs> to sort of take in. I'm still often looking at the songbook and, and often the songbooks do not have the notes in them because they have grown up with the songs and know them. So let's see. So after the song there's often a blessing and then we start and Food is passed family style from person to person around the table. And um, one of the things I learned very quickly was take what you will eat. Do not take more. Do not leave food on your plate. And no one said this to me, but you quickly see that people don't leave food on their plate. That's that's wasteful. That's um, selfish. You know, you can have seconds. Um, you can have as much as you can eat. But it's a way of respecting the creation, too. Um, yes, the food is primarily raised by us, whether it's um, the meat or the vegetables and all the bread often we make. I, by the way, came to Spring Valley. Um, that was I lived there for 11 years, my first 11 years. That is a big dining room, um, and you can open the door between it and another room and expand it to another 300 people if you want. Um, or it can be another room for a meeting, which is what we often do there. It has very good acoustics, so it's a very a really good sound when everybody sings. Um, beautiful windows, so the light is nice in there. And then as we're eating... Sometimes in, in previous decades, someone would read a story, um, a lot like they do in monasteries. They would read the Psalms. Well, we would read stories that would probably appeal to the youngest age group that's attending that meal. Or someone will read something that they, the person who quote unquote has the meal, you know, is in charge of the progress of the meal would bring something to read or um, say something. Oftentimes birthdays are announced at lunch of everybody in the community that has a birthday that day or or um, anniversaries. So we can then when someone will launch into a birthday song, one of a dozen that we can sing that we have um, for that person. Um, so people are celebrated. And then um, we finish eating and the person often will say another blessing and close the meal. And that's when community starts, because you probably noticed that people get up and seem to know what to do. 
Um, they all, you know, take their plates and put them at the end of the table and their um, silverware sorted in fork, knife, and spoon, all facing the same way. And hopefully children will pick up stacks of them and take them to out in the hallway where they are pre-sort of rinsed before they go to the through the dishwasher. And people carry stacks of plates to the dishwasher. Food is carried back and, you know, gathered up and put into the cooler for leftovers. And I would say within about 10, 15 minutes, everything is done. Tables are wiped. And maybe in another 10 minutes, they're stacked and they're ready to meet there. I don't know if you had that experience. Um, A friend of mine called it organized chaos. No one told anyone what to do, but everybody knows what's got to be done. And you just do your part. Yeah, it's really, and it's very joyful too, I find. And I, I, I think this is this is one of the things that might be hardest to grasp if you've never been to a Bruderhof community because in our popular entertainment, large communities are almost invariably represented as joyless, strict, you know, ordered, rule-bound, and and that's not the experience at all. And and like you say, it's it's not even uh, it's not as if you know this kid or that kid is on duty that night, right? It, it's it's it is uh, it's an organic and joyful communal process, and and I think that's that's really lovely and part of what we all come away from that experience with. I forgot to mention the most important part: the brothers get up and go to the dish sink and do the dishes. They wash all the dishes and all the pots and pans. And so that's what guests most often notice and are just amazed by. The other thing, part of my part of this project was going around with the photographer and photographing life and community. And it's just that kind of thing, the joy in, in doing this that I was trying to capture and was repeatedly frustrated by the inability of still photography to capture this. To me, that is community, this swirl of people all going and doing this, and the photographs just don't convey it. And Or we would have four people standing and talking and you know connecting with one another, and I would say to the photographer, there they are, photograph that. And he'd say, but they're not, they're just standing there talking. I said, that's community, shoot. And he, you know, he had different visions of how to capture community, but I was trying to capture just what you had um, experienced, this, this, um, these moments. He did a good job. Um, it's just very hard and still photography to manage. I mean, as, just as, as standalone photographs themselves, they're absolutely wonderful. I mean, they, uh, apart from the way that they all hang together and contribute to this vision, uh, it's, it's excellent. Uh, my, my kids, this is, this is their favorite book in the house. I mean, they'll just sit down, they'll just pick it up off the coffee table and sit down and spend some time just looking at photos, you know, especially the ones who can't read and they just, you know, look through the photos. It's, it's a, it's a vivid, vibrant book that, that has that kind of energy that, that a good children's book has. Great. Thank you. I, I wonder if we could uh, maybe turn to some of the stories in the book. I mean, the way it works is that there, there may be uh, over a hundred little vignettes of of people who are in the community, some of them who have passed on, but most who are still alive. And I was wondering if uh, if you could read 
from Lata Keiterling's memoirs and then anything you think might be helpful to contextualize that. Okay. And since the book was written, Lata has passed away. So Lata, just to give you a little context, was one of the kinder transport children. And she came from Vienna, Austria. And she, her mother put her on the, her parents put her on the kinder transport plane, train to um, Britain. And she came to the community. And so she lived in the community for the rest of her life. Her mother was killed in um, a Polish ghetto. Her father did survive the war and did live in Buffalo, New York, but died before she could go visit him when she came back up to the community from Paraguay. In 1950, before her father came back to the U.S., she writes, When I was 19, a young man on the community fell in love with me. He was a German, but he didn't worry or care that I was Jewish. He just loved me, and I fell in love with him. We got married in 1952, and guess what? We had 13 kids. And I said, I gave Hitler a kick in the pants. And that was her, that, that is Lotta's humor. And as the mother of 12 girls and one boy, she had a lot to deal with every day. Yeah, this was a very short profile, wasn't it? Okay. She was the first, um, that was the first family I met when I came to the community. It was the day after Christmas, and they invited me in for snack when we arrived. And I sat down at their table and looked down, and there must have been 10 young women sitting around that table. And um, they've never forgotten it, nor have I. It was, it was quite, a, um, quite something. The next person who I think could be interesting to talk about, someone who you know, is in the, in the prime of her life now, is Jeannie O. Oh. And this is in the sickness and in health section. She's described as a mother of two daughters with disabilities sharing how she came to terms with their suffering. And Jeannie is South Korean, and uh, I think the newest, one of the newest Bruderhof communities is in South Korea. It is. I met Jeannie back in 2001 when I was in Korea for the community. I was visiting with two other young women from the community, and Jeannie and her husband, Kevin, had been um, visiting the our British community for, oh, a year, 18 months. Um, That was their second visit, and they had asked to become members. So they had to go back to Korea in 2001 and get a a longer visa to become members, and that's when I met them. And meeting them there changed or transformed my visit in Korea. I could have a, a, a window into Korea through Kevin and Jeannie, and we traveled together for oh, three or four weeks in Korea and became very good friends. We often stayed with her parents, um, her father, the pastor, and her mother with the biggest heart on earth, who is about my age. Jeannie is an amazing woman who has an amazing sense of humor. And her husband, Kevin, similar, has an amazing sense of humor. And that is what has allowed them to um, prevail over having two out of their four children have fairly severe disabilities, very rare conditions. I don't even know what the condition is, but it it makes it very difficult for them to walk or speak, and they often have seizures. And yet, by being in the community, they they have been able to get some mobility, and they often do tasks in the community so they feel part of it. 
I would add that Jeannie has probably read every book in the library at the community, and we're talking quite a few books in England. And English, of course, is her second language, and she even Trollope is her favorite. And I have not even attempted Anthony Trollope myself. So she's an avid reader, has a great sense of humor, and a very good friend, but carried a lot of sorrow because she felt like by bringing these two daughters to the community, she was burdening the community. And when she was um, expecting their fourth child and didn't know, you know, what the outcome might be, she was just very burdened by, am I going to add more burden to the community? And it was really affirming for her to be in a a community meeting and be able to express that I'm really scared um, that my child might have a disability again and that, you know, the community would have to take care of it. And one person after another got up and told her that that would be their privilege, that it would not be a burden and that whatever God gave her, they would share with her. And it was just really affirming for her. But that's a um, a deep burden that she carried for a long time. And I wonder if you could read here where she talks about the the struggle also of, of accepting help and, and, and really of yielding the, the boundaries of the nuclear family up to the larger community. Right. She writes, I was always crying, and Kevin didn't know what to do with me. He was happy for all the help. I thought he was an idiot. How could he just let go and allow other people to take over our family? I was so conflicted. I asked for device, advice and got advice I couldn't accept. I needed help, but didn't want it. Meanwhile, even with all the support we got, I was often at the end of my rope just taking care of the healthy members of my family. I remember Sejun, that's their son, telling me when he was four that he wanted to be blind. And I said, what? He said, no one ever notices me. If I were blind, then people would also say hello to me and not just to Sarah and Serene, her daughters. Today, he's a student in London studying physiotherapy. Then one evening, I was sitting there wondering why I had two disabled girls. There was no rational explanation, and suddenly, all the tightness in my heart was gone. And I could laugh. I just laughed and laughed. I don't know why, and I found myself telling God, what I was done with, that I was done with being stubborn, that I accepted my girls and also all the love that community was giving us. I said, I surrender. And what you have to do is um, tell them about the photograph that goes with that of Jeannie laughing. Yeah, it is right with with her husband. I I assume at the at the table there. That's and, right. Yeah, and it's as if she was telling that story, right? And yeah, I think that's a that's a beautiful story, and and it actually reminds me of uh, really actually a, a bit of an inverse of a story. And I was actually born myself into a Christian community. My parents were hippies who converted to evangelical Christianity uh, in their uh, sort of college age years and joined a, uh, a radical commune that was had similarities with the Jesus people back in the back in the 70s and they you know held all things in common and 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 really depended entirely on 
God for their their provision. And my parents were very. This was a you know a really uh, transformative time in their lives. Very positive, I think, in in many many ways. Uh, they met in that community and got married. But then they, six years in, they had a child who was me, and all uh, childcare was done communally. And the parents would be assigned different tasks within the community. And my mother worked in the kitchen. She was a cook. And I was taken care of most of the day by other members of the community. And she really found that to be a struggle. And, and it was partly her desire to have a more intact nuclear family uh, with, with more boundaries that eventually led them to, to leave the community. But it's a, it's a big hole in their lives that I know that they've always felt ever, ever since then. And, and so when I, when I read Jeannie's struggles, I, I can really, I can see where that's coming from in, in my mother's own experience. And I, and I can imagine how it would be hard for, for me, for our family. And so one of the, one of the interesting things that I've found is the arrangement of, of living because it, it seems that there is, it is the case that nuclear families do stick together. They live together, um, within the Bruderhof, but they, but they do so in a way that, that is more permeable. I would say the boundaries are more permeable, including, uh, that, that the living space may be shared with, with a, a maybe two different other generations. So, uh, if, if I'm right, um, potentially a, a young single person who is doing some kind of work and formation in that community at the time, and then maybe a younger couple. Is that is that a pretty typical situation? And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about those dynamics of the nuclear family and then the larger community and, 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 and what the living is like. The family is the core of community. The father is the head of the family, and that each family it's essential that the children are part of their their own their families. What they do share often are kitchens with another family, and that's a that can be a um, challenge to those of us that grew up in a typical single family household. The idea of sharing the refrigerator is the ultimate test of community in my books, and it's done. It's done with you know labels and you know different areas of the refrigerator, and it's done quite nicely. Or sharing you know a stove and things like that. Given all that, most of our meals are cooked by the main kitchen, and we eat together in the dining room. So that relieves a lot of that kind of thing. But you could have neighbors that are a younger couple or an older couple or a single person down the hall. But I would say that your family areas, including your bathroom and your and your bedrooms and your living room, are very much by your family and very much that's your area to gather in and to be together in. Yeah. Oftentimes singles are assigned to be part of a family, so they have a, a place to go. Uh, they have a a built-in family. They're not wondering where they're going to go to breakfast or where to go in the evening. They have something built in. Or in my case, I make a family with another older sister, and we have a, a living room in our in our own separate bedrooms, but we are considered a family, and we will often have a another sister assigned, to, you know, 
as part of our family, and we welcome that because it's a good way for us to get to know um, younger sisters on a, a deeper, more uh, familial level. But we often have people in um, in the evenings and and uh, socialize. What I was wondering about, though, with, when you mentioned your your parents, do you mean when the children were cared for, they didn't go home to their parents at night? They were all cared they, for. They, yeah, they they did sleep with their with their parents at night, uh-huh. right? But but for for the larger part of the day, they were they were separated, even even when they were infants. And I think that was part of the the struggle. Maybe we can talk a bit about Philip Britz, who who stands out to me. Uh, this is a really interesting figure. He lived from 1917 to 1949, and he's described in the book as a farmer, a scientist, and a poet. And I'll read from an essay that, that he wrote when living in, in Paraguay uh, at the time. Are we really standing at the beginning of a new age of scientific development, of supersonic speeds, of atomic energy, of more and more wonderful machines? Are we really about to enter an era of greater wealth, greater luxury, greater leisure, and emancipation from drudgery? Or has this age reached its climax, and will this civilization destroy itself with those forces which it has created? Time alone will answer this question, but it is by no means certain that the scales will tip for peace and plenty. To sail onwards in the arrogant confidence that man can manipulate these tremendous forces for the good of all is to drift toward catastrophe. Is not this the poison of the age? the belief of man in man. And then uh, there's a, a poem that, that he wrote that is presented here as a kind of response to this, this question. And if you have his section in front of you, I was wondering if you could read The Carol of the Seekers. Yeah, we often sing this at Christmas, often just after Christmas during the time of Three Kings. The Carol of the Seekers. We have not come like eastern kings, with gifts upon the pommel lying. Our hands are empty, and we came because we heard a baby crying. We have not come like questing knights, with fiery swords and banners flying. We heard a call and hurried here. The call was like a baby crying. But we have come with open hearts, from places where the torch is dying. We seek a manger and a cross because we heard a baby crying. And one of our members put it to music in a very beautiful, um, appropriate melody. He died at 31, really young. And he died of a disease he contracted while working under contract to help earn money for the community up in Brazil for um, an agricultural research area. And it was a I think a virus, and it was a, it was a difficult, slow death, um, tragic, absolutely tragic. He never met Everhart Arnold. He joined in the Cotswold when the community had to go to England in thirty-seven, um, and yet he read Everhart Arnold's writings avidly, and often um, he was a one of our servants, one of our leaders, and. If you read his transcripts of his write of his services, it's Everhart Arnold through Philip Britz. Same thoughts, same messages um, in Philip's words. Um, so he really connected with him, even though I never met him. I first heard that poem in the 
Bruderhof Christmas Spectacular, which is this YouTube production of this past Christmas that was a real hit with our family and I highly recommend it. I hope they do another one like that this coming year. Yeah, some good things came out of COVID. Yeah. And uh and you know, part of the delightful the the delight of that is just all of the different families and communities singing and and playing their many instruments. And song is just such a central part singing is together as as you as you mentioned in the community and i was thinking maybe we could listen to a couple songs and and talk about them and you've chosen a couple easter songs which will fit the season when this episode is released so uh, i hasten to say they're sort of pre-easter songs you know they're okay they're they're, they aren't the triumphal um oh happy you know, Easter Day, it's more like Good Friday-ish. Okay, passion. more like Lenten songs for our current season. Right. You mentioned when we were setting up this conference call that you wanted to me to find a recording and, and, um, and we could discuss it. We don't have many recordings of our songs. We just sing them, right? right? So yeah. I was upstairs Monday night. You emailed me Monday and... Um, I mentioned to the people I was sitting around with after our meeting that do any of you know of a recording of Tell Me O Humble Grass and explained what I wanted to use it for and they didn't know of one. They said, let's just record it. And so it was a couple that are my age. Um, They're the parents of another couple that were there and then another single sister and then another older sister. So you have four women and two men. And he pulled out his guitar, and they sang it right here. I didn't sing, so it would sound good. I I just held the book. (laughs) Okay, great. So here it is. Besides this being a beautiful song, what I really like about it, and it's that the words are simple enough that a child can relate to them, and the tune is simple enough that a child can sing them, but they're very deep words, and they took on new meaning for me in this last year, or maybe for all of us, because Plow, our um, publishing house, just started a poetry contest, and they named it after a Dominican Republican poet by the name of Rina Espelat, and she happened to write the poem that this song is um, 
based on. And we've now been in touch with Rena. She's in her 80s, living up in the Boston area. I believe she still teaches college, and she's a, a poet. A poet. And um, we asked her, what inspired you to write it? And she wrote back to us that it was composed when she was, when she, at the time, she converted from Roman Catholicism to the Episcopal Church, and she was in charge of arranging the flowers for the Sunday service and teaching simple precepts to the six-year-olds in the Sunday school in a church in New York City. And she writes, The poem came out of my admiration and affection for Yeshua ben Yosef, and that's her way of describing Jesus, the brilliant young Jewish carpenter who was far, far ahead of his time and paid with his life for his humanity and unfailing sense of identity with human beings everywhere. His life and words tell me that we are all one family, and his insistence on how that fact matters more than any dogma, ritual, or command has guided me all my life. The two genuinely best people I've ever known are my agnostic father and my more than agnostic agnostic Jewish husband, both gone now. They gave all of themselves wherever they went, to whoever needed them, and left behind nothing but goodness, generosity, humility, and a gift for spreading those. My poem presents Jesus, the name given to him in the Middle Ages by European Christians, as part of nature, linked by his humility to the world's grasses, by his spiritual beauty to flowers, by the sweetness of his words to reeds that sing in the current, and by his acceptance of pain and death to the thorns that crowned him. Poetry is the closest I get to prayer. You know, maybe that last paragraph is the best part, starting with my poem presents Jesus. So the the now when we sing this, I have a lot more to think about and to um, connect with. That's beautiful. And, you know, it strikes me that so many of the the songs from the songbooks are like this. They are they're very elemental. In fact, um, I was surprised when looking through one of the Bruderhof songbooks for the first time, how many of the songs are, are not explicitly Christian. They're not hymns per se. They are often seasonal and they are uh, celebrations of the natural world and of the rhythms of the seasons. And uh, and then in a in a song like this, that that elemental natural imagery is the the ground out of which the gospel message grows. Sort of like that, you know, that line from Psalm eighty five, truth rises from the earth. And likewise they are, as you said, very accessible because of those reasons for to even the youngest children. And you know, it reminds me of the way St. Augustine of Hippo described the Bible, which is a book shallow enough to bathe a baby in and deep enough to drown an elephant in, something to that effect. But the songs I, I find are, are very similar to that. And, you know, there are some of the more classical hymns that, that are complex rhetorically and metrically and so on, but, but so many of them have this, have this natural beauty to them. And I was, you know, I, I found in the story of um, Daniel Hug or Hug Hug in Hug in the book. Uh, I believe he's German. Yes. Um, 
you know, an, an encounter with, for him, what drew him, an encounter with uh, the, the simplicity and the, the, the childishness of, uh, or the childlikeness of the spirituality. He had, I'll just read a little bit from his account, you know, he grew up without any religious upbringing. And he said, as a student, I kept circling around the question, what is life all about anyway? Um, I didn't have a religious background, yet in the end I went to a Buddhist monastery to try to find out. And later I moved away from Buddhism and began a long journey through Christian communities and monasteries. I lived with a group of Franciscans. I also made a final foray back into Buddhism at a hermitage in, in, in Sri Lanka. But then in 2007, he visited the Sanerts community. And he says, outwardly the forms were totally alien to me. I was used to the silence and solemnity of monasteries, and here it was all bustling activity and lots of children, a very different spirituality. Like every newcomer, I was a stranger to the particulars of Bruderhof customs and culture. Finally, there was the whole idea of giving up my freedom and being accountable to others and trusting people in a position of leadership. That's not something a liberal academic upbringing prepares you for. Despite all this, Sonnerts was an oasis for me in a time when I was pretty much in the desert. Or to put it another way, a beacon of real hope pointing to the kingdom of God itself, to the essence of all that is good. I didn't choose the Bruderhof. Um, I was called here. But it, it, you know, it's very interesting to me that, that after, it sounds like a real extensive experience of various forms of monasticism, it was this uh, more natural, uh, organic, and, and communal expression that where he found the community and the uh, and the authority that he had always been looking for. Um, and I wonder if you could, I mean, he, he really does bring up this, this question of authority and obedience. And I wonder if you could, you, you could talk a little bit about how authority and obedience works in a community that's very much based on natural, organic freedom. Let me think a bit on how to quite structure the answer. The first thought that comes to mind is, Our leaders are called servants, and they're called servants for a reason, definitely from the gospel where Jesus tells the apostles that if you want to be a leader, you must be willing to be a servant and, you know, do the lowliest tasks. And it's a, I would imagine, it's a very difficult task to um, guide and shepherd uh, people's lives. And the the typical idea of a, a minister with their privileges is not something you'll find in the community. It's a it's more of a, a task of serving and trying to find what's best for everyone and but most especially staying close to God and representing, you know, the the voice of the community as well as the voice of God in our midst. As members, one quickly, you know, the, it's the ultimate commitment to commit your entire life to a group of people and that's what membership is in the community. And you don't realize how freeing that is once you've actually, until you've done it. There is a a freedom in commitment, perhaps the way there is a freedom in commitment once one um, marries someone. And, you know, there's a, there's a freedom to be who you are kind of thing. And so obedience is ultimately obeying Jesus or God. And it's obedience on the level of right here and now, doing what you're asked to do, or and you know that you're needed to do. And there is a gift that comes with obedience as well. 
certainly one can express what one feels, um, but I hope we all have a, a certain inner feeling for, am I being selfish, or do I really feel that, before you start expressing a concern. And we are not a, a democracy, so to speak, in that you know you, you vote or uh, majority rules. All of our decisions are made by consensus, and the consensus is that of the, the gathered uh, membership. And if one person expresses a concern, we will listen to that concern and hold off on the decision until that person also is convinced. Having said that, if you have a concern, it needs to be, and, and you express it, it needs to be a valid concern. It needs to be something that you feel is from God, not just from your own opinions, so to speak. It's probably um, very similar to any other. I mean, this is the way it was amongst Quakers as well. If you had a concern, you raised it. Um, but the concern needed to be a valid concern, not opinion. So, But it's not majority rule, um, if that's what you're... And it's, it's a discerning of spirits and a moving together to come to a consensus. And in terms of identified leaders, it was very interesting to me that uh, the the... Really, the the leader of the Bruderhof communities uh, recently passed away, Johann Christoph Arnold, who was the the son of Eberhard Arnold, right? Um, grandson, but or grand grandson, right? Um, but there, but it, but there was nothing formalized that this this was not a hereditary position, right? No, and and there was also it wasn't the case that when he passed away there there was actually as far as i understood it there was not any kind of formal procedure for you know choosing a new leader and i i that was so fascinating to me and i was wondering if you could uh, maybe just describe a little bit about to me it's very revelatory of this this you know consensus based spirit based leadership model, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that recent transition. Well, actually, a number of years before our elder, Johann Christoph, passed away, he had already passed his eldership on to um, first, in I think 2001, another brother, Richard Scott. And Richard Scott you know, was our elder. One would go to Christoph Arnold more for, he, w- he would handle more of inner situations because he had a lot of experience in doing that. And and then Richard Scott, sadly, was diagnosed with cancer and passed away uh, about two years after he was diagnosed. And Christoph again appointed another brother, Paul Winter, to be elder. And so Paul um, took on the eldership while Christoph was still alive, and they often worked very closely together. And so when Christoph died, Paul was already the elder. So that's why there was no big decision needed to be made. And there, it was, um, there was a, um, you know, when Christoph suggested these two different brothers as elders each time, he suggested it and the brotherhood, the, you know, the gathered membership could express how they felt about it. And, you know, if anyone had any concerns or agreed, um, you know, there was time and there was opportunity to express what one felt. One of the, I think, modern 
or recent developments, it seems, in the Bruderhof's history is um, for so many years, for so much of the history, it was there was the real struggle for survival, um, particularly um, after the community was kicked out of Germany, then kicked out of England because they were German in World War II, and then went to, to Paraguay where they had to basically learn how to be farmers, right? And uh, and, and so for so long, there, there were these just uh, elemental struggles. But of, of recent years, um, the two uh, businesses, the two main businesses that the community um, started, one community playthings, which makes very simple toys and manipulables for, for classrooms, mostly out of wood, and the, the other Riften Industries, which which designs and manufactures furniture and other kinds of equipment for the severely disabled. Both of these have been very successful businesses. And there is now then, you know, uh, as it were, a family business to for money of the community to work in and and to provide a more stable form of support. Both of these businesses involve manufacturing and the manufacturing is done uh, entirely in the communities the first 21st century factory that i've i ever witnessed was uh was one out here in pennsylvania where you know where you have these incredibly complex automated machines turning out plastic parts that that have been that are coming out of machines that have been designed and made in many cases by members of the community who have been trained in, in, in dye making and so on. Uh, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating. But the thing that I think is most striking when you walk into the factory assembly floor, uh, with all of these tables set up alongside each other for the assembly of, of the various parts that have been made by machines is that, Every member of the community takes their turn working on this floor, and there are even stations that are set aside for the very elderly um, and for the uh, physically and mentally disabled. And this is such an inefficiency, right? Um, in in fact, uh, a couple of the students here in in Pittsburgh something they do in the summers is they spend part of their summer sitting alongside an elderly or disabled member of the community, helping them do the work of the assembly in, in the factory. It doesn't, it doesn't get any more inefficient than that, assigning a young, able-bodied person to help an old person put together uh, a, you know, a, a piece of furniture. And so could you talk a little bit about the, you know, the experience of doing menial manual labor on the on the factory floor and and how that's different from working in an impersonal factory well i think a lot of it has to do with how one sees what you're doing there's a story in the community actually let me just see if i can find it real fast it's the story of tom potts he was our first ceo of community playthings he said something absolutely brilliant um he was He had come from owning and managing a steel mill, inheriting and managing a steel mill from Pennsylvania. And um, 
came from an old Quaker Pennsylvania family that had a fair amount of money and joined. And um, so we asked him to head up our business, and he did that very well for many decades and then handed that off to another young man who he trained up and went and worked on the factory floor. And one day someone came and said, so what are you doing here, Tom? He said, I'm going to have to find that for you. Oh, I see. I, I, I have it here. So a visitor to the shop once asked him about his work. You could say, I am assembling this part, Tom said. But what I am really doing is thinking about the child that will use it one day. There have been times with Ripton equipment when I've been working, assembling them, that I wanted to put a little note of encouragement on it as I send it out. You know, these are amazing stories. And we, you know, at Rifton, we really feel like we're helping people have a better life through mobility or better hygiene or whatever the equipment can provide for them. That's what we're doing there. And so, yes, when you're helping an older sister or brother do something, you're connecting with them. You are interacting with that sister or brother and making their life also meaningful, not necessarily through the work, but through connecting with with individuals. We do outsource some of our work, but we will choose to outsource things that we don't have the skills to do, whether it's computer programming or something that would take us away like um, from our families um, by having to do it at long hours. We'll, we'll parcel that out. And we will keep meaningful work for our elderly. Like all people, the elderly are just as aware of make work and don't want to do make work. They want to do meaningful work. And so we look out for jobs and products that allow for meaningful work, and we'll keep that in our shops. There's, uh, near the end of his life, Johann Christoph Arnold wrote about about the future, and I think this is a good transition because part of the future of the Bruderhof is maintaining and and stewarding these these two important businesses. He said, my plea to you as I think about the future is that God's work finds new expression in you and that you find it with a living history of what God is doing today. Different expressions will never contradict what God has given in the past. What God worked in the past never remains in the past. It lives in the present and points to the future. Times change, demands change, but God's will never changes, and he is at work today. Your task is to go forward with courage and joy. Looking around, I mean, especially in this moment of a of a pandemic and a real large international crisis, what do you and your community see as some of the challenges of the future and as some of the the vocations of the present that, that may not have been as clear in the past? I would say adaptability and authenticity. One thing that many of us in the community feel is that when we come out of the pandemic, we do not want life to get back to what it was. We want to live with renewed authenticity and genuineness and renewed appreciation for our life and be open to it taking new forms. In the past year, we have um, started two new communities, uh, one out in Idaho and one in Tennessee, um, very geographically distant from where we are, partially uh, because we are growing and partially because 
we've long wanted um, a community close to the West Coast because a lot of people have been um, interested and just can't make that trip from the West Coast to visit. So we are looking forward to, you know, moving forward. In this time of COVID, we've had a lot of interest in the community, whether it's from the the book, the fact that the BBC did a, a special on the community and that went viral on YouTube, or, you know, our, our efforts of outreach have gotten better, but we have hundreds of people wanting to come visit, and we can't at this, until hopefully summer, we, we are not open for visits. But when they do come, we want, you know, for them to see a, a real living brotherhood and to, and to see what life can be like. And that's a, that's a hopeful sign that um, this pent-up desire for another life um, is finding expression in people communicating with us. I'm, I'm sort of seeing it as a fourth wave of people coming to the community. Um, the first wave was in Germany, second in England. The third wave was when they came to the U.S., in 1955, and um, so hopefully, and then starting with the Koreans now, and then with post-COVID, I see another wave happening, beginning. I was thinking we could, uh, we could, the interview, we could go out with another song. Would you like to introduce this, um, the second song here? Sure. Uh, now, Now the Green Blade. Right. Now the Green Blade Riseth, one of my favorites. Um, it's from the Oxford Book of Carols. And um, different. And the Oxford Book of Carols is obviously from England. And um, our English members brought us an appreciation for those carols. They're often Christmas carols. And this one happens to be a, a spring summer, I mean, a spring uh, Easter carol. My favorite verse is the last verse. I'm just going to read it before they sing it. When our hearts are wintry, grieving, or in pain, thy touch can call us back to life again. Fields of our hearts that dead and bare have been, love has come again, like wheat that springeth green. So you want to go ahead and play it? Yeah, it's perfect for this time. Like the risen grave, he 
Well, the book that Claire Stober and her collaborators have put together is called Another Life is Possible. There is a dedicated website with many of the stories and photos called anotherlifeispossible.com, all one word, and you can order the book there. Claire Stober, thank you so much for making the time. It's been a real pleasure, and, and thank you to all of your your collaborators for this beautiful book. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about the book and about the community. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's Beatrice Institute, all one word, Org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.